It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we have the distinct pleasure and honor to speak with a young man who is a trumpeter, a composer, and a band leader. He is a graduate of Berklee College of Music, and he has an album coming out which is rather timely and provocative. It's called Live from the Prison Nation. So when we talk about the prison industrial complex, we're not talking about a single issue. We're talking about a whole network of issues that has critical ramifications for us today. Our guest today is Alonzo Demetrius. Alonzo, thanks for joining us today on All That's Jazz. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here, like I said. Let me ask you about you. You started taking on music at the tender age of eight years old. You started doing some singing and piano work, but then you picked up your trumpet, which is your instrument now, and uh, that was at age 10. Where did all of this come into play? What were your influences or inspirations for music? Well, uh, it's a couple of things. So my great uncle, my my, my grandfather, who, who actually recently just passed, his brother um, was a member of the Whispers. He was one of the singers. He was in that singing group. And that coupled with my grandfather, he used to play guitar at church all the time. So I, I was always around music. My mother's a singer. My, my whole family kind of grew up going to church. And... Music has, it's just always sort of been there. Uh, and so when it, when it, when I was, you know, eight or nine, of course, I remember my mother bought me a little toy piano and I would just bang out, you know, hot cross buns or, you know, whatever you could figure out as an eight year old on the piano. And then I started realizing, well, I can do that and sing at the same time. And I remember the very first thing I learned to play and sing was happy birthday. And I used to just, you know, call up my family members on their birthdays and play them happy birthday on the piano and sing it to them. But the trumpet really sort of found me. I had no interest in it at all whatsoever, at all. But I didn't want to be in class because <laughs> I didn't care for, for academics. So instead, I, I decided to try almost every single instrument in the band room. And the trumpet was the last one I tried. Hmm. And everybody else was struggling to get a sound out on the mouthpiece. And I, I took it. I got it in one try. And I said, OK, I guess this is this is what I'm going to do. And and over time, it just sort of serendipitously happened to be what, you know, became my life's passion. But in no way had that been the plan or I always thought I would, you know, go on maybe to be a singer or something like that, um, like my uncle. So I'm, I'm impressed by that, that right off the bat, you were able to make the sound on the trumpet. So it was obviously kismet. It was meant to be. So many people have stories like this, especially in the terminology that you just used, where the trumpet chose you. Mm. So where did the jazz influence come from? Was there always jazz on in the household? Did you have anybody involved in jazz music itself that may have been an inspiration for you? Honestly, not particularly. I definitely grew up around more gospel, R&B, hip-hop, things like that. Jazz came into play, I want to say, probably in the 
sixth grade or seventh grade, sixth grade, when I was probably about, you know, 10 or 11, not too long after I started, I realized that I could miss more class if I joined the jazz band too. So, so I, I, you know, I said, all right, whatever, you know, I'll do jazz band. And it took over my life pretty much. I mean, I mean, from the first rehearsal, I actually started a jazz ensemble called, called lunch detention. We rehearsed every lunch period uh, in middle school. And it was, it was, uh, it was just awesome. And I was, I don't know, I can't exactly explain what exactly it was that drew me to it maybe it was the freedom of it i'm mostly self-taught so not having a teacher to tell me what was right or wrong kind of led me to find my own things and jazz was the only style that i could find that let me just do that you know that everything was you know it's either you know the right or wrong didn't matter it was it was more about you know just the expression itself and it was more about trying you know even taking solos moving from trying to play written solos to trying to improvise myself it just felt so much more open and free than the classical stuff that I had been looking at before and I I guess that's really what pulled me in but uh I I don't really remember growing up with the music at all it was probably about middle school that I that I got into well what's great about it is that jazz is really all about improvisation as you well know Uh, and it's coming from the heart and the soul And, and it's something that moves you to create the music that you hear in your mind and put it either on paper or play it through the instrument itself. Right. When did you start any musical formal training? Probably not until my junior year of high school. The last couple of months there, I was at a program called the Philadelphia Cleft Club of Jazz. They have an after-school program on the weekends. And I started studying with a trumpet professor there, a trumpet player named Will Wright. And that was the first time, yeah, that was the first moment that I ever had anybody actually sit me down and say, hey, do these exercises, buy these books. These are people you should be listening to. This is things that you should be checking out, both from a classical perspective and from a jazz perspective. You know, I was doing transcriptions and patterns and learning about theory. But at the same time, I was also doing, you know, uh, like etudes and and, and all, all, all the kind of like technical studies and that was interesting for me because like I said, being self-taught, I was so used to just kind of figuring things out, having someone tell you, you know, Oh, you know, point you in the right direction is it's, it changed a lot for me and helped me grow much quicker. Pointing you in the right direction led you to Berkeley. What path was opened before you or what doors were open to get you to Berkeley? So the summer before this was the summer before my senior year, that, that same year, I, I attended the Berkeley College of Music five-week program as a part of Terry Lynn Carrington's um, jazz workshop group. And during the, the, the summer camp, we had an opportunity to audition for the college. I just figured, you know, you know, what the hell, go for it, you know? And uh, I made it and I got a scholarship and it actually had been my number one, my top choice since my freshman year of high school. And so at that point, you know, I kind of walked into my senior year knowing exactly where I was going to go and knowing exactly what I wanted to do. So that was that was pretty much the, the, the biggest stepping stone was getting into that workshop. You moved through the years uh, at Berkeley and graduated with your bachelor's in music in 2018. But then a year later, you achieved a master's degree. Tell us about that. At Berkeley, there is uh, the, the Global Jazz Institute, which... 
Uh, I want to say that I was the fourth class for them to introduce the actual master's program. And that master's program, this album actually is a result of that master's program because it is, it's centered around activism as a musician, as a jazz musician, particularly being, being globally aware of issues going on and, and what, what difference can you make? How can you make a difference as a musician? That was what the, the entire purpose of that master's program was. Um, it was, it was another scholarship and it was one year and I was still living in Boston. I figured I was going to live in Boston for a year anyway. So I decided, you know what, forget it. You know, I'll just, I'll audition for that again. I made it, <laughs> I made it again. And I just felt so lucky to, to have, to have done it. And my, like I said, this album was, was essentially my, my master's thesis. Talk about some rather interesting uh, classes on social and political significance, being active or activism itself in music. You mean specifically the classes? Yes. One specific class where every Friday we did some sort of outreach program. And that was the biggest thing for me. Um, I'm drawing a complete blank on the name of the class right now, but... Um, it was taught by Danilo Perez, who um, uh, is Wayne Shorter's piano player and the artistic director of the Global Jazz Institute. His wife, Patricia, who does research on, on music therapy, she, she taught this class. And basically, we went over different ways to use music as a healing tool for, for, for people who are in either nursing homes. So we visited nursing homes. We visited a, a prison um, where else did we go? We went to a mental institution, men, mental institution, sorry, a wide variety of places that were strange to me to perform in. The prison performance definitely inspired some things in the end, the record as well. But a lot of that class was just talking about the ability music has to touch people and bring something out of them sort of subconsciously, um, whether that's that's people who are you know, nearly brain dead, you know, or, or living with Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that in a, in a nursing home. Um, you can turn on a tune that, you know, maybe was from their childhood and, and you could see them kind of come to life in a way that really nothing else does. And taking that concept, I really wanted to take that concept and capture it for everywhere we perform. So that somebody who may have been in prison for, you know, 10 to 15 years, you know, I can play them something that will bring out of them some sort of some sort of joy or some 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 kind of emotional reaction really but tap into them on a deeper level that that class was really deep for me so that's where you began to have some of this just piece together and and move you in that direction to the release that you have upcoming how important is it to a musician to be socially and politically active personally if you would ask me i i think that in a lot of ways it's almost it's almost imperative that musicians are, are active and are aware socially. I think in a lot of ways, my personal view is that it's as, as an artist, I'm obligated almost to, to, to be aware, to be, to use my art for something that's bigger than, the, than just because I think, uh, I think I don't want to get caught up in kind of making art for art's sake. Uh, I, I really want to to make an impact. And I, I think that artists with the platform that we have and the ability to manipulate emotion the way we can and to, to put more esoteric or more, you know, things that aren't so cut and dry uh, as, as you know, conver you know we, can, we can converse and we can talk about things. But when it comes down to like, you know, even political views or, or, or it, like I said, emotions before, I think music is the, is the one 
medium through which that can be communicated effectively to to a large audience of people. And I think when you have a tool that that's power that is that powerful, I think you're obligated to do something with it. And I think that I feel obligated to do something with it. Let's talk uh, about the recording itself. It uh, is up for release on uh, October 16th of 2020, Mm -hmm. and it features your band, The Ego. Uh, Yes, sir. Tell us about your band members. They're the greatest people and the closest friends I have. I mean, I just, I have such a close connection to them. Um, First of all, I've, I've had, I've been playing with my band, The Ego, for about three years now. We used to oh we used to have a weekly residency at a at a jazz club in Boston called Wally's Jazz Club. Um, we played every Wednesday, and so when it came to doing this record, we were still playing every Wednesday. I want to say that this record was actually on a Wednesday. It was it was on a Wednesday, so I figured okay, let's just add this into that rotation of things. And and they came in and they killed it. Um, Daniel Abraham, he's my keys player, but he also plays key bass at the same time on two tracks on Mumia's guidance and on the principal he's playing uh, piano and, and key bass at the same time. I mean, he's just an incredible musician and between him and the drummer, Brian Richburg from, from new Orleans and, and Daniels from Boston, they, I mean, I, I often say that those two are, are the ego anymore, almost more than I am. You know, um, I started the band and I, I write the music, but when it comes to breathing life into it and the groove and the pocket of things, um, Daniel and Brian have just such a special lockup and connection that I've, I, I don't get with any other musicians ever, nor I haven't yet uh, in my, in my young career, but sure. I, I just love them to death. And then the saxophone players, you say for Ali, I've known him since we were probably about 13 or 14. He went to the Philadelphia Clef Club of Jazz with me and actually another up-and-coming jazz artist, uh, Emmanuel Wilkins, um, the alto saxophone player. He was also in that program with, with us. And um, it's, it's, interesting. it's just crazy to see where, where all three of us have gone. But when it came to recording this, I, I knew I wanted saxophone. And anytime I want sax, I, I, just, I, I always reach out to him first. He's like a brother to me. So I reached out to Yase and he came and, and he absolutely crushed it. I mean, I, I love everything he plays on the record. Um, the only exception to the band members is, is actually the bass player, Benjamin Jephta from South Africa. Um, he's extremely talented. He was actually a part of the master's program with me, and that's how he, he came to be on the record. Tell me you- about the description of uh, explorative use of electronic processing and sampling <laughs> in this album. What does that mean? Yeah, um, I just really like combining... I use a lot of pedals, like guitar pedals, with my trumpet at the same time. And I just, I sometimes I just really like trying things and, you know, kind of pressing all the buttons and seeing what sounds come out on top of the trumpet sound. And that's, that was the, that was really what it was. It's, it's, um, a lot of the effects that you hear on there were, I didn't predetermine what they were going to be, or actually I didn't predetermine what any of them were going to be. I, I came in with my, with my gear and I set it down and, we set up and basically from the first moment in, I, I just started kind of playing around and exploring and trying different things. And that's, that's, that's mostly what I meant by that. And then of course, with the samples, that was my first time using samples ever in a, in a performance. And it was very interesting. I learned a lot. I've, I've learned a lot about what else I can do with incorporating electronic elements with, you know, more of a traditional I guess, you know, traditional jazz quintet setup, and I, I, I'm loving the sound right now of it, so there'll definitely be more of that. 
And so the album is called Live from the Prison Nation. Mm -hmm. Why or how did you choose that particular title? That title is actually the sign-off phrase that Mumi Abu-Jamal, who's a, who's a political prisoner, there is a podcast that he uploads onto called Prison Radio. And at the suggestion of Terry Lynn Carrington, who's, who's been a longtime mentor of mine, she suggested I look into him and look into his prison radio podcast. And every podcast he signs off from the prison nation, you know, it's Mumia Abu Jamal. And I found myself listening to first a couple, then 10, then 12, then 20, you know, and I just was listening to them almost every day uh, of his podcast. And I just, and every time he said it, there was just so much like weight to the way he said it that I, I was I was like, I need that. I need to capture that. So I decided to use that as the, as the title for the album. It's interesting that you chose Mumia as well as Angela Davis uh, as two key figure roles in this recording. From a personal perspective, I'd say Mumia has significance uh, beyond measure in terms of his writings, uh, in terms of his history and and the the agony, the, the suffering, the plight that he's gone through in his life. Mumia became a, uh, a significant element of news because he was arrested and charged with murder of a Philadelphia policeman. And right. that's where he became highly active once all this happened. So what, what did you learn from Mumia that might have inspired you uh, in, in the music itself that you created for this release i mean he's super intelligent and very perceptive i think the biggest thing that got me was i was expecting this podcast to be outdated but it was it was totally up to date and he has uh i have i have a track on the record called mumia's guidance because i at first i started off doing research into his history but when i started listening to the podcast it was filled with so much advice and wisdom for what was going on in the current moment. You know, um, he was talking about, about President Trump, about Black Lives Matter, about Freddie Gray and, and, and Trayvon Martin. And, and I think I was caught off guard that he would be talking about these things the way he was and, 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 and the way he was giving advice and the way he was saying, okay, you guys should, this is what should be done or this is what has worked before. And he, he has this way of commanding your attention, even though it's, it's just through, you know, a podcast, you don't even see him. join together, their power is multiplied. This simple fact has animated every popular movement in Black American history. That means the only time Black folks in America have made a step forward, there was a movement behind it. That's because movements break new ground. I started looking to him for guidance more than I did into his actual story itself, because I, I think I think I got more out of it from looking at it from that standpoint and from researching, OK, what is this person, his history, 
being what it is, you know, what does that person have to say about what's going on in the country right now? And how can he help me make my statement about what's going on in the country right now? And that's that's definitely the, the biggest piece about Mumia that I, that's why I chose him, yeah. Well, on that particular track that you are speaking of, uh, which is, again, uh, Mumia's guidance, I, I don't think it could be more timely where he is saying the power of movement, when people join together, their power is multiplied. And then from there, you transcend into the music and expression of that message. Yeah, I, I loved that. The, the audio take that goes throughout that particular track is actually from two different podcasts of his. But I just loved what he said. I mean, I, I've been taught, sort of turning over this idea of community activation in my head and the idea that there's no, there's no one person that's going to get this done. And when he said the power of movements, you know, when, when, when people join together, they're, they're, their power is multiplied. That, that concept to me, it just it aligns with everything I've been thinking about because I think that people power is, is one of the most important things that people don't understand we have. Um, it's an extremely important tool that I don't think that people take advantage of or understand is as important and, as, and is as powerful as, as it really is. When he said it, I remember almost like tears coming to my eyes and, and bear in mind, these podcasts are barely two minutes long. Sometimes, you know, I think the one that I took that one from was, was about two minutes long. And in two minutes, he's able to say so much about the history of movements, about the history of how it's come to be that we don't see movements as much anymore or, or how, or how certain movements today are reflective of the ones that came before. But, but, but historically, I think, the American people have been disenfranchised to think that, that movements don't even really work when that's not the case at all. Um, and I think shedding light on that and shedding light on, on that activism isn't about being an activist. It's about coming together and being a group, a collective and a, and a, and a community of activists and being active as a community. I think that's the biggest thing. What do you hope would be the takeaway for people that listen to that track? Movements work. They are powerful we are more powerful together than we are divided. That's, that's the biggest thing I want people to walk away with is, is understanding that, that this, this does work. We can come together. We can pull together our, our collective resources and find solutions to these problems. And it doesn't necessarily need to mean that we're waiting on any one person. It's not the presidential candidate isn't going to come in and, and you know whoever the president is gonna come in and in one fell swoop fix everything you know um this is really up to us and that's what i want people to 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 walk away knowing i want them to, to feel like okay yeah if we're gonna make a change then it it, it must be a movement that's uh, very profound and well said and, and you're right it, it's not going to happen overnight voices are beginning to be heard and i think that's mm -hmm. the key right now and especially uh, with you carrying on that significance through this recording, uh, to me, I, I think it's very, very important. I wish, uh, Alonzo, every person in America could hear this recording and get the message because it's time. This stuff needs to change. It needs to stop. Uh, and yeah. we all need to move forward. It's not only black lives mattering, but the social and justice system uh, needs change uh, and, uh, and I think it's courageous of you as a musician to take this on and to deliver this message through your music. Thank you. So tell me about expectations as well as Angela Davis. In this case, I wanted to 
I really wanted to capture what she was talking about with with prison reform versus ab- abolition, and and what and I wanted to capture sort of this feeling of of expecting something to happen, but it never quite getting there. And that's why uh, when I have the piano ringing, it's it's a fifth, which is technically a you know it's a it's it's a it's a perfect interval in terms of harmony. There's no you know dissonance or anything like that, but. There's something about that ringing fifth over and over that to me always kept feeling like something's coming. Maybe there's like a resolution coming or there's something, there's something there that isn't, it hasn't resolved yet. And it's, it's still, we're still waiting on it to get resolved. And I built everything around that feeling of something feeling like it's building, it's building, it's building. And every single time you think it's going to resolve, it kind of just goes back and it builds again and it builds again. And I wanted that to represent sort of the mindset that the the prison industrial complex has forced people, it, its victims, to to be in in this perpetual state of expecting something either bad to happen or 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 even this perpetual state of expecting something good to happen, and it not never coming. So when we talk about the prison industrial complex, we're not talking about a single issue. We're talking about a whole network of issues that has critical ramifications for us today. Most people tend to characterize the solution as prison reform. Have you heard that term? That's the term that everybody uses. It rolls off everybody's lips with such facility that even though I personally have never characterized myself as a prison reformer, not in the not in the 40 years I've been doing work around this issue, I'm constantly defined as a prison reformer. That that was really what I wanted to to capture with that. And with Angela Davis's speaking on it about being a prison abolitionist, I really wanted to make a, a very clear statement too that um I personally don't, I'm not a very big fan of prison reform as an idea. And I, I absolutely do think that that private for profit prisons at a minimum should be, should be abolished. I, I don't, I don't see the legality of it. I don't necessarily see the, the ethical basis for which it stands on. I just, I just don't understand why, why those can exist now. And I, I, I want to do that. Yeah. And let me uh, talk about the, just the last two uh, tracks, uh, because I think they're interrelated uh, with the theme of community in mind, one being the uh, Foo's interlude, mm-hmm. and it starts out with a chant, this is what community looks like.
what a message, uh, especially now. Uh, I, I don't think this could be any more timely than it is right now. Uh, and what a voice and an expression of that chant. This is what community looks like over and over. Uh, and that's uh, what it's about. Do you see it that way? Or was there something else in there that you see? No, that's exactly how I see it. That is exactly... 110% how I how I see it. Like I said, I've, I've been sort of refining. I have a, a sort of guide that I'm creating as a, that I'll be putting out alongside the album. And it's a discussion guide that I'm, I'm working on that breaks down the album pretty much how we're doing it now. And this last piece dives into the idea of community activation. And I really wanted Fu to to represent that because that first off, that audio is taken from protests after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. Those are Ferguson protesters. And I, I took that audio because after having listened to so much of what Mumia had to say about movements, about people moving together and then to, to stumble upon this audio. And I have tons of different footage of just these huge hordes and crowds of protesters. It became super clear to me. Like I, have to touch on this this fact that this is about a community resistance you know all all protests these are community protests these are people who are, who are living together living next to each other breathing the same air fighting the same struggles who are all coming together to voice their displeasure and that's that's the that's the most key part of all of this that's that's the that's the thing that's going to make a difference and i i absolutely decided that that had to be the last piece of the record because i needed people to believe knowing that I'm thinking about the community and I'm thinking about, you know, show me what community looks like. You know, this is what it looks like. This is us coming together and, and on one accord to, to fight against oppression. Uh, that to me is, 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 is big. And, and so you're referring to the last track being foo shit. Uh, yes. And in the album uh, graphics, it's F dot O dot O dot. Is that an anagram or what was the purpose of uh, presenting it that way graphically? Yeah, actually um, it is. It's an anagram. Um, it's a play on words sort of uh, from the uh, FOP, which is the Fraternal Order of the Police, um, which I didn't know it existed until I started looking into Mumia's case actually. And I started seeing what hands that they've had, as particularly in these police brutality cases, and 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 cops kind of getting away with murder and, and and all kinds of things. And when I started looking into it, I I, I was thinking, you know, fraternal order of police, but they're much more like oppressors. So I turned it into fraternal order for oppressors, which is foo. Also, foo, when you're talking, you know, to like a younger generation, we say foo because foo is like like foo, foo shit to me, you know, where I'm from, that means uh, like BS, you know, it's just, you know, you're messing around and it's juvenile almost. Um, and I almost kind of wanted to reduce it down to this almost like funny statement, like, uh, you know, this is, this is just some foo shit. This is some BS. And that to me, it, it almost serves two purposes. It's like, I'm acknowledging them for who they are for oppressed, for the oppression that they, that they seem to promote. But then I'm also sort of, looking at it from the lens of just how I would see it, how I would say it, you know, how I would describe what's going on. And uh, I just think the title serves both purposes to me very perfectly. So does that track culminate in a message of hope? That track ends 
with this melody, which actually is taking all of the melodies in that track are taken from protest songs. And that one is what do we want justice? When do we want it now? I ended it with that because especially at the time of writing, I, I definitely wasn't thinking hope. Um, this was about a year ago. I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to end this album hopeful because I don't want to deceive people into thinking everything will just be okay. Or, and I don't want to think for myself that everything is just going to be okay. Like I'm just going to make this album and I'm going to make some commentary and, and that's it. It's, it's sort of, um, I ended it there because we want justice and we want it now. It's something we're not getting. It's something that we're not seeing. Um, even with just the, the verdict of Breonna Taylor's murders, murderers, excuse me, we, we still haven't seen justice for that. And I, I not necessarily hope, I actually really want action is, is kind of the ending feeling I want. I want people to feel empowered and, and ready to take action in, in, the, in their community. people to hear those last few notes and go okay cool it's time for me to do something I, I gotta you know I need to register my friends to vote or I need to register to vote or I need to be more involved in local politics I'm gonna start showing up to town hall regularly anything you know something to get involved I, I, I want that to be the, the message if people want to learn more about you and your music how can they do that uh, following me on Instagram is definitely the best way to do it, but I also have a website, egomusic.net. That's the best way to find me or my Instagram, which is just at Alonzo.Demetrius, my first and, and last name. Well, I hope that for the future uh, and certainly for the present, we hear more about you and from you because what you're doing is quite commendable and, and very wonderful, uh, not only as a musician, but as an individual and a human being. You are truly a standout, and all the best to you in your future and what's ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on this on this podcast, and thank you for, for weathering the storm with me. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with trumpeter and composer Alonzo Demetrius. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Please join us for our next episode featuring a conversation with jazz drummer Richard Barada about his new release, Music in Film, The Real Deal. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the app you used to listen to us. We have new podcasts every Wednesday. You may subscribe for free. We are now heard on all top platforms, as well as Facebook and our website, allthatsjazz.net.